Those are the voices of liberty, singing Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. It's one of the experiences to enjoy when visiting the American Adventure. The American Adventure at Epcot is many things. It's one of 11 World Showcase pavilions. It offers a gallery, entertainment, retail, and a food and beverage set of options. But uniquely, the name of the pavilion is also the name of its primary attraction, which is a condensed theatrical show portraying the history of the United States. It sits in a grand theater that is seldom full. There are many reasons for this, but I believe if one truly understood the messages of this show, they would not only attend, but find context and solutions for today's world, and importantly, hope for the future. I am your host, Jeff Kober. Please visit my notes page, Disney at Work or Disney at Play, to see everything, the links, the images, the text for this special edition. This post and podcast is not a travelogue describing the American adventure. Rather, this is about your American adventure. Allow me to offer some context. This week, my oldest son and daughter-in-law welcomed our first grandchild into the world, a beautiful, healthy little girl. Next month, my oldest daughter, along with her wife, will welcome our first grandson. My wife and I are grandparents. We are overjoyed. If you have grandchildren, you no doubt understand how we feel. But both events are occurring in an era of difficult times, made uncertain by the economy, by a worldwide pandemic, and by global protests to a brutal killing of a black man by an officer of the law. I am a white middle-aged man who has no context of what it means to fear for the color of my skin. Because of this, I have been blessed with many opportunities others have not been afforded. Among those blessings was a mother who sat me down many a time and instructed me how to stay out of harm's way. But she never had to tell me to be in fear because of the color of my skin. Now, all of that has changed. Both my granddaughter and my grandson-to-be are biracial, with roots extending to countries like Colombia and Haiti. Because of the color of their skin, their mothers may very well have to host that difficult conversation. And that troubles me greatly. People are grappling about what to do how to make their voice heard, how to create a better future for themselves and for others. I think the challenge is multifaceted, and I think it calls for many solutions in many forms. For some, that is speaking out online. For others, it is protesting. There are many ways to influence matters of such importance. I encourage everyone to find their voice in this. For me, one approach I have taken is to turn to something I am passionate about. And I hope in doing so, it will offer enlightenment with others who hold the same. At the end of every podcast, I invite listeners to follow the compass of their heart. In this instance, I am following the same and have prepared a message that I hope will be not only of inspiration and understanding to my grandchildren, but will to you as listeners as well. Most of you have seen The American Adventure. It will be a few years before I have a chance of taking my grandchildren to this attraction. It will take many more 
to appreciate it. Hopefully, it will not take long for you to do the same. To you, as well as to my grandchildren, this is your American adventure. As the curtain rises and in the darkness of the proscenium, the voice of Ben Franklin is heard to say, America did not exist. Four centuries of work, bloodshed, loneliness, and fear created this land. We built America, and the process made us Americans. A new breed, rooted in all races, stained and tinted with all colors, a singing ethnic anarchy. Then, in a little time, we became more alike than we were different. A new society, not great, but fitted by our very thoughts for greatness. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Twain. Perhaps you recognize those inspiring words from one of America's great writers. Uh, oh, Dr. Franklin, I don't recall writing anything like that. Oh, my, of course not. They're from the pen of John Steinbeck back in the 20th century. Why, it seems he has nearly the same spirit as the founding fathers themselves. So at the beginning of this show, Ben Franklin welcomes us, then begins to note that the words came from a great statesman. Mark Twain offers no recall of having ever made that statement. Franklin then credits John Steinbeck of the 20th century. I want to offer a little more context for Steinbeck's statement. In his writings, he states, quote, our land is of every kind geologically and climatically, and our people are also of every kind, of every race, of every ethnic category, and yet our land is one nation, and our people are Americans. Models have a way of being compounded of wishes and dreams. The model of the United States, e pluribus unum, is a fact. America did not exist. For centuries of work, of bloodshed, of loneliness and fear created this land. We built America, and the process made us Americans. A new breed, rooted in all races, stained and tinted with all colors, a seeming ethnic anarchy. Then, in a little, little time, we became more alike than we were different. A new society, not great, but fitted by our very faults for greatness. E pluribus unum. End of quote. John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck is a great American author whose best known work is The Grapes of Wrath. He speaks of many other matters in this and other writings, particularly in regards to how we treat each other. I'll speak more of him at the end, but the idea that Disney chose to have an idealist like Ben Franklin quoting John Steinbeck a century or so before Steinbeck is born is not to be missed. Steinbeck emphasizes the concept of e pluribus unum. It's what uh, is on those coins people no longer carry in their pocket. It means out of many, one. Its origination, however, came not from coinage, but from the development of the great seal of the United States. Seals are seldom used anymore, but in those days, a seal was essentially the official stamp of approval. You can see what that seal looks like in the foyer of the Hall of Presidents over at the Magic Kingdom. But in the hallway leading to the American Adventure, you don't see a seal. 
you see dozens of flags, all of which flew over some part of the United States at one time or another. This is the context for which we enter the theater. We leave what is many different entities and become one. We become e pluribus unum. Ben Franklin will speak of this when he mentions to Thomas Jefferson how difficult it is to get 13 clocks to chime at one time. Clearly, Franklin would understand how much harder it is to make 50 chime. That is our circumstance currently. But we can all become e pluribus unum. Getting states to chime together is difficult. Getting its citizens to chime together, well, that's much, much harder. While complaining that one stroke of the pen brings two changes from Congress, Thomas Jefferson notes that John Adams should have written this document. Franklin notes that by his own admission, Adam thinks Jefferson could write circles around him. I may come to speak with one voice in a declaration of independence. Ah, good evening, Mr. Jefferson. Have you finished the draft yet? Those are new drafts all over the floor, Dr. Franklin. It seems one stroke of this pen brings two changes from Congress. I told you John Adams should have written this. Oh, by his own admission, you can write circles around him. Mr. Adams has not been prisoner in this law for 17 days. I shall continue tomorrow. You must continue now. Thomas. It is difficult to make 13 clocks chime at the same time. We must carefully justify the separation. Dr. Franklin, while you slept soundly through the meeting this afternoon, we did manage to justify the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to secure is not present in the American adventure and probably should have as he played such a critical role in the formation of our country. But that would have probably doubled the length of this show. That said, the two were feuding founders. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, feuding founders. They spent years in debate with one another, seldom agreeing, often arguing, but deeply respecting the other. So intense was their feuding friendship they would die within hours of each other on the very day of the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. These individuals had their own flaws. There isn't anyone mentioned in this post that isn't, including myself. Still, e pluribus unum. If we are to find unity, we must learn to deeply disagree while remaining respectful of one another. Before the Declaration of Independence came to be, before that e pluribus unum came, came protest. 
We know that one of the biggest of these protests came in the form of the Boston Tea Party, America's favorite protest. As Ben Franklin shares, In the decades that followed, a new challenge began to emerge. We were growing more and more apart from the other country. Passion began to govern, and she never governed as wisely. heart of hearts, no one should care for protest. Certainly Ben Franklin didn't. That expression just mentioned comes from a larger paragraph. Written by Ben Franklin, February 5th, 1775. Quote, I cannot but lament with you the impending calamities Britain and her colonies are about to suffer from great imprudencies on both sides. Those arising there are more in your view, these here, which I assure you are very great in mine. Passion governs, and she never governs wisely. What we can't remedy, we must endeavor to bear. But I find it to be more and more difficult. Anxiety begins to disturb my rest. Whatever robs an old man of his sleep soon demolishes him. I have, however, generally strong hopes amounting almost to an assurance that though we may suffer much for a while, America will finally be greatly benefited by her present difficulties and rise superior to them all. End of quote, Ben Franklin. Our founding fathers were anxious about dissension, especially that dissension that comes through chaos and calamity. But even though that stress kept them up at night, they were hopeful about the future. And despite our challenges, we can still be hopeful about the future as well. When did passion stop governing wisely? It happened when passionate people gathered. Certainly one should not find offense in people peaceably assembling. That's what the Sons of Liberty did, and they did it underneath the Liberty Tree. Boston's first protest against the mother country came underneath the Liberty Tree, similar in concept to the one found across from the Hall of Presidents at the Magic Kingdom. It clearly became a symbol of defiance over time because a British loyalist actually chopped it down in 1775, even before the Declaration of Independence was declared. No one with any reason can defend the use of violence, nor can I find any purpose in looting, defacing, or ruining the home or business of another. But in all of my years growing up, with an understanding of the Boston Tea Party, 
I do not recall anyone lamenting the poor souls who lost their shipment of tea. Curiously, it is stated that those ships, the Dartmouth, the Beaver, and the Eleanor, loaded with tea all the way from China, were built in America and were owned by Americans. By any other description, it was an act of vandalism, an act that led eventually to freedom, but by means of a long and painful war. So you see that actions like these have been around a long, long time. Protest and defiance is part of our national fabric. It led toward the revolution and that fight led to freedom, the very freedom I enjoy today. Not always the freedom everyone enjoys so freely. Ben Franklin notes that 13 very different colonies became the United States of America. The country starts moving west and Mark Twain takes over the dialogue. Frederick Douglass on a raft in the middle of a bayou. In the show, he emerges from the audience's right as if sailing down the river, making progress. In truth, the river projected behind him keeps moving forward, but his raft will move backwards. Quote, even amidst the cricket's song along Mark Twain's beloved Mississippi, I hear the noise of chains and the crack of the whip. Frederick Douglass offers here what seems to be two contrasting worldviews of Southern life around the Delta. But in life, they were more alike than different. The relationship between Twain and Douglass is worth noting. Sources mention that Twain's ties with Douglass ran deep. Twain's eventual father-in-law, Jervis Langdon of Elmira, was a passionate abolitionist who played a major role in Douglass's escape. Twain, raised in slave-holding Missouri, grew up immersed in the virulent wearisome of the world around him, end of quote. They go on to say that Twain was a thinking man and that, quote, his attitudes changed as he traveled the nation. By 1869, as editor of a Buffalo newspaper, he was writing editorials that attacked a lynching in Tennessee, end of quote. Twain would use words to fight against slavery. In time, he and Douglas would interact with one another. Frederick Douglass goes on to say in the attraction, Yet, there is hope. Hope on from the word. 
so. Uncle Tom's cabin is given our nation a key, which can unlock the slave prison to millions. Anti-slavery is no longer a thing to be prevented. It is grown too abundant to be snuffed out like a lantern. There is a lot to unpack in this narrative. It is filled with metaphor and symbolism. To better understand, here is what Frederick Douglass once stated, which notes that the key is not a metaphor, but rather a secondary book written by the same author. Quote, why, sir, look all over the North. Look South, look at home, look abroad, look at the whole civilized world, and what are all this vast multitude doing at this moment? Why, sir, they are reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. And when they have read that, they will probably read the key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. A key not only to the cabin, but I believe to Slave's Darkest Dungeon. A nation's hand with that key will unlock the slave prison to millions. There is nothing in her reception abroad which indicates a declension of interest in the great subject which she has done so much to unfold and illustrate. The sending of a princess on the shores of England would not have produced the same sensation. Men will write, men will read, men will think, men will feel, and the result of all this, men will speak. And it were as well to chain the lightning as to repress the moral convictions and humane prompting of enlightened human nature. Herein, sir, is our hope. What men wrote, read, thought, and felt were the works of a woman, a white woman, a Christian white woman. The abolitionist movement referenced was largely started by Harriet Beecher Stowe's writings, which were some of the most read during the 19th century and did so much to influence opinion. She did more with what was perhaps the most powerful form of media in that century than probably any individual could do with online social messaging in this era. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there were many others who never are mentioned in this narrative. Harriet Tubman was a superhero of her time. She and so many others played a role so critical to the freedom of others. Still, the reality is it takes many people to stand up to truth. Douglas, Twain, Stowe, Tubman, and others. They were all completely different individuals standing up in different ways for what was right. And in the next section, many would die for it. When Douglas mentions being snuffed out like a lantern, the lights on the stage go out, and the conversation between two brothers begins. Troublemakers like Douglas got us into this mess. We only wanted freedom, not war. Well, listen to my abolitionist brother. What? Paul, he's gonna make a real good Philly Yang. We got a good call, Johnny Trail. What? Oh, Nothing can ruin today. We're all together. That's what counts. Now, you go 
By the way, that song was not written by some folk artist back in the days of the Civil War. It's written by a 20th century composer born in Brooklyn, New York, to a Jewish family. His name was Israel Goldener, but later he changed his name to Irving Gordon. As a child, he studied violin and eventually became a composer. He got one of his bigger breaks when he was introduced to the jazz great Duke Ellington in 1937. His most famous composition is the song Unforgettable, made famous by Nat King Cole and again later by his daughter. Most people focus on the words of that song, one wore blue and one wore gray, emphasizing not only the differences, but who was ultimately victorious. But we forget one of the most repeated phrases, one was gentle, one was kind. This statement is ironic because a line later says, a cannonball don't pay no mind if you're gentle or if you're kind. We don't know which was gentle and which was kind either, seemed akin to either of those traits when they argue in front of Matthew Brady. But even though both were gentle and or kind, only one went to war because two brothers were sold as slaves. Indeed, not two but millions, sold, separated, and slaves starved, and more. The irony of this scene is a white family having a perfect little picture taken of them together when black families were being torn apart at the same time. The truth is consequences, whether in the form of a cannonball or other harm, they come to those who are gentle and to those who are kind. Our being gentle or kind will not entirely remove us of the consequences from bigotry and hate, of war and terror. We must stand against such things. But there's another story tied to that scene. It's tied to Matthew Brady and it can be likened to our day. This story was shared by Kayla Randall a few years back. In March of 1863, an enslaved person known only as Gordon escaped from the southern Louisiana plantation of John and Bridget Lyons. After a harrowing miles long voyage, he found safety with Union soldiers camped in Baton Rouge. Gordon then vowed to fight for the Union in a black regiment where he would eventually become a sergeant. Before he could fight, he was examined by doctors. They discovered deep, horrendous scarring on his back from whippings received in slavery. Photos were taken, 
by photographer Matthew Brady and published in Harper's Weekly, the most widely read publication across America during the Civil War. When Gordon's story reached the public, it stirred outrage. The photo quickly became one of the most powerful pieces of evidence showing slavery's brutality. One journalist at the time said, quote, this card photograph should be multiplied by 100,000 and scattered all over the states. It tells the story in a way that even Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe cannot approach because it tells the story to the eye, end of quote. Abolitionists distributed copies of the photograph of Gordon throughout the country to expose the horrors of slavery, and the country paid attention to not just to Gordon's story, but to slaves like him the world over. Again, these photos by Matthew Brady were critical to turning sentiment in the needed direction at a critical time. If a picture is worth a thousand words, it may shift a million opinions. Certainly it did this month when people saw a black man being choked to death. We must share the story of all that is good and bad around us. We've covered many points so far and we've just barely started. What is the American adventure? Those important points include the idea that we can become e pluribus unum. That if we are to find unity, we must learn to deeply disagree while remaining respectful of one another. That we can combine our faults, our weaknesses into being great. The protest and defiance is part of our national fabric. That you do not have to be suppressed to fight for those who are suppressed. That whether we are gentle or whether we are kind, we are impacted. And that we must share the story of all that is good and bad around us. There is much more to the American adventure, just as there is much more to your American adventure. The show has often been criticized as too short, as missing too many things. Perhaps people will say the same of this podcast and post. But hopefully both serve to inspire you to find out more about your country. As stated by others, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Let us return again to where we started with John Steinbeck. John wrote of the plight of the weary and oppressed through much of his life, but no work was better known than The Grapes of Wrath, which became a film starring Henry Fonda as Tom Joad. In this story, Tom takes his mother and family from the Oklahoma Dust Bowls out to California. They become migrant workers, oppressed by the conditions surrounding them. Overwhelmed by their circumstances, the workers seek to organize and strike, but guards nearby attack them, and Tom, trying to save his friend Casey, who gets shot, ends up killing a guard himself. The scar left on his face makes him too easy to be recognized, so he must take flight away from his family to another place where he can fight the cause for social justice. One of the great moments in America cinema is Tom Joad's words to his mother, played by Jane Darwell, the woman Walt Disney would years later call on to be the bird woman in Mary Poppins. Here 
she realizes she may never see her boy Tom again. This is her plea, and this is Tom's response. Then what, Tom? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, Tom. Me neither, Ma, but just something I've been thinking about. Tom, Jode, and Ma may not have understood it in Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, but Steinbeck did. And so did Woody Guthrie. He's best known for This Land is Your Land. But he also wrote a ballad based on Grapes of Wrath. That same sentiment shared in the film is found in the lyrics below. Everybody might be just one big soul. Well, it looks that away to me. Everywhere you look, in the day or night, that's where I'm a gonna be, Ma. That's where I'm a gonna be. Wherever little children are hungry and cry, wherever people ain't free, wherever men are fighting for their rights, that's where I'm a gonna be, Ma. That's where I'm a gonna be. To my grandchildren, I hope you are never hungry. I hope you never have to fight for your rights. And I hope you never lose the freedoms that matter most. But know that whatever your circumstance is, whatever your American adventure is, that's where I'm a gonna be. <laughs>